You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. 2 Samuel 13 tonight. Story that uh, you probably didn't hear a lot in Sunday school. Probably, probably for good reasons. These are stories that when you don't teach through the Bible, you probably just skip. Because, I mean, I was just kind of like sick to my stomach just reading it. It's just, just bad, terrible. But we, we've got some good application that's going to come out of it for us. So we're going to read the whole chapter, 39 verses, and then we're going to talk about a couple things relating to the subject matter. Um, of course, we have just come out of the this, this story that we're all very familiar with, King David having committed adultery with Bathsheba, having then tried to hide that, uh, then finding out that she's pregnant, can't hide it, so then he continues to try to hide it, so uh, let's get uh, Uriah to come and 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 We'll, we'll have him go home and it'll all be taken care of. Nobody will know that this is my child. Well, he doesn't want to do that and he won't cooperate. So, well, let's kill Uriah. And then a year goes by with all of these sins sort of weighing on David. And he writes about these convictions that he was experiencing in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And we, we looked at that and how that David was just under complete and utter conviction of the Holy Spirit until finally Nathan the prophet came to him and gave him a story and David was incensed by this story and how could someone do this and we looked at that a few weeks ago how could someone take the only little sheep of this poor man and and then kill it for his friend just to make himself look good and 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 Nathan said David you're the man and just right to his heart. David repented. But as we talked about, your sin, although forgiven by God, will reap consequences in your life. There's absolutely nothing that you can do about that. If you choose to disobey God, if you choose to rebel against Him, then the consequences of those actions will follow you. And oftentimes they follow us in future generations as we see our sins being duplicated by our children as we've sort of given them the freedom and the permission almost to make the same mistakes that we do. And I think that's why it's important for us to communicate with our kids and, and to tell them of the, the repercussions and the consequences and the things that have transpired in our life because of what we've done. And some of you ladies, if you had children before you were married, and maybe that child is a child that, that was a, a product of a, in, you know, a relationship that you probably shouldn't have had. It's important to, to talk with them, to sit down with them and to say, look, although I'm super glad that you came into the world and that the Lord... Uh, blessed me despite my sin, I want you to know that here's some of the consequences that have transpired because of it. And I don't want you to make the same mistakes. Because I think our kids just feel like, well, mom did it, dad did it, why can't I? Yeah, they're telling me now that I can't, but why 
Why can't I do the same things they did? And we need to sit down and be honest and open with them. And I don't think David did that at all. And, and the, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. The, the same sin that David committed, now one of his sons is going to commit, but even in a more heinous and sick and perverted way. Because sin always takes you further than you want to go and takes from you more than you ever intended to give. And so David, his sin was kind of acceptable, at least initially. Sleeping with another man's wife, I mean, he's the king, you know. I mean, he can get away with that. But then it turned into murder. And now it's going to turn into incest and rape with his son. And so know, you guys, that sin never slows down. It always builds and it takes more and it steals from you and it destroys you and it destroys your family. And so 2 Samuel chapter 13 verse 1, after this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister, which means that this was his full sister, whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. And so Amnon, so lusting after what we'll find out to be his half-sister, he, he's actually sick over it. He, he's so consumed with her. But it was improper for him to do anything about it. But he had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemai, David's brother. So it's his cousin. And now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So it's Absalom's full sister, it's his half-sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me. Literally, the Hebrew is, do not humble me. Do not bring shame to me. For no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. 
Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. So go, go about it the right way. And it was somewhat ex- acceptable to marry your half-sister. You remember Abraham married Sarah, who was his half-sister. So go talk to the king. Do this the right way. However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her, with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out, away from me, and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, But he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. So he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on their way, that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons. For only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord, the king, take the thing to his heart. To think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. 
And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said, so it is. So it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came. And they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahimehud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Now this story is going to continue to unravel because David didn't do anything to stop what happened to his daughter, Tamar. He didn't do anything to protect her. He then didn't do anything to honor her after it happened. It says he was angry, but he didn't do anything about it. And then when Absalom kills Amnon, he continues to let sin have its way in his family. He doesn't do anything to Absalom for killing his son, who, yes, probably deserved it, but that kind of vigilantism shouldn't be allowed to go on under the king's nose. And so what happened is Absalom will continue to have his respect for his father erode to the point where he actually usurps his father's authority and takes over his kingdom. And we'll see that as we continue on in Second Samuel. But there's two things here in our text tonight that I want to talk about. Two things I think we all struggle with, I think that we all deal with. The, the issue of lust and the issue of revenge. That, that's at the heart of this story here. Amnon had lust in his heart for Tamar. Lust that he didn't give to God. Lust that he wasn't able to flee from. He let it control him. So much so that he was sick. He was losing weight so that Jonadab said, dude, what's going on? You're losing all kinds of weight. What's up? And he came up with a plan. A plan that allowed Amnon to fulfill his lusts, but then right after he fulfilled his lusts, he hated his sister. He hated her. The, the love that he had for her was, was actually exceeded now by the hatred he had for her because it wasn't done right. It wasn't done under the blessing of God. And you guys, when, when you seek things that aren't given to you by God, and when, when you go after things that God hasn't given you, when you find them, there's no fulfillment in it. There's no joy. Actually, you begin to hate it. And lust has that type of control on us. And we have to, as Christians, crucify it. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. We have to reckon our old man to be dead. Now, this lust here is a sexual lust, which probably every man here has that struggle. The, 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 the struggle of sexual lust, the, the struggle with thoughts that have to be crucified. But there's all kinds of lusts. The, the Bible calls them the lusts of the flesh. And you can lust after power, you can lust after money. You can lust after fame. You can lust after the affirmation of men. You can lust after a high. You can 
lust after material things. There's any number of things that can come into our life that consume us, that are the lusts of the flesh. And if we don't crucify them, they'll control us. And we'll pursue them at whatever cost. And in the, the heat of it, in the moment, it makes sense. It makes total sense. I want this. I've got to have it. And I think that's why fasting can be a great discipline for us. And, and I admittedly am, am not a person who fasts often. Uh, but lately I've, I've been doing it some. And it, it's, it's amazing what it, it does for you beyond just not eating. Because it, it really allows you to, to have victory over your flesh in a lot of different ways. Because I think your appetite, your, your hunger is probably you know, right up there with your sexual appetite. It's, it's a controlling thing. It's hard to, to say no to. And when you do and you just seek the Lord and you pray and every time you're hungry you, you cry out to the Lord and you seek His face... There's something very spiritual about that that just gives you control over the other lusts of your flesh. I think that's why the Bible places importance on fasting because it, it really does help you in that area. Because I don't think we notice it, but you know, when we're hungry, we eat. And then when we're a little bit hungry, we eat. And when we're not even hungry, we eat. You know, When we just see food, we eat. But when you say no to it, and I mean, when you say no to, to it when you're really hungry, there, there's something about that. But obviously, unless you're a glutton, eating isn't a sin. And so it, it's these sinful things that we really have to say no to. And for all of us, they're different things. It, it, it could be power. It could be money. It, it could be the affirmation of men. Maybe it is sex in, in the, the lust in, in that kind of way. But whatever it is, it has to be crucified. It has to be put to death. And Paul talks about in Philippians, and I'm going to turn a little bit tonight. I don't normally do that, but we're going to do that tonight. You don't need to turn with me necessarily, though. But I, I want to read just a few verses from the New Testament to shed some light on this. Paul talks about what we set our mind on in Philippians chapter 4. The things that, that your mind is focused on. And I mean, I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to know that what you think about ends up becoming reality over time. If you dwell on things and that becomes the focus, pretty soon it becomes reality. And that's why advertising is so prevalent. Because it works. And so you've got an old beat up TV, you know, you've had it since the early 90s, and man, you've been wanting a new flat screen, and you go over to your friend's house, and they have one, and then you see it on TV, and then you hear it on the radio, and then you go to somebody else's house, and pretty soon you think, you know what, I, I really need that, and, and you're, you're focused on it, and pretty soon, what you probably would have never even thought you would ever buy, it's in your house, and it, it became a reality, because what we think about tends to come to fruition. And if you're a person who's constantly dwelling on sinful things, and doesn't have to just be sex, I mean, I think all the guys are thinking, yeah, you know, that's something I need to crucify for sure. 
But, I mean, it doesn't have to be just sexual things. We talked about some of the other things that it can be. If you're single and all that you think about is the fact that you want to get married, and that becomes the passion of your life, and that's what you dwell on, then you end up making rash decisions. You end up marrying a person you shouldn't. If, if you're a person who all you think about is money, 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 and how can I make more, and how can I acquire more things, that will become a god to you. And it really is sort of an issue of idolatry. And Paul in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 8, says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now it's interesting because... These two verses are in the context of Paul telling you to empty your mind of negative thoughts. In verses 6 and 7, he talks about being anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and and the peace of God will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's saying, you need to empty your mind of the, the negativity of the the worry of the stress and all of that. And then he tells us, put your mind on these things that are true and noble. And all of these things that he talks about, you could put Jesus in the place of, and it would fit perfectly. Whatever things are of Jesus, whatever things are noble or of Jesus, whatever things are just, Jesus, whatever things are pure, Jesus. Each one of those is really fulfilled in Christ. And so I think what Paul is saying is, don't just put out the negative out of your mind like he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, when he says, to take every thought captive. What does that mean, to take every thought captive? Well, I think what many of us believe is just put that out of your mind. Just put it out. If you have a lustful thought, put it out. And in Philippians, you know, if you, if you have worry, just put that out of your mind. The negative things, put them out of your mind. The, the, the lust, put it out of your mind. But like we saw on Sunday with the, the demon that was exercised out of a man, if there wasn't something to take its place, it would come back even more powerfully. And so here's the, the application. I think, you guys, if we're just concentrating on putting it out of our mind, putting it out of our mind, that won't last very long. I mean, we can do that for a while. We can take control of our thoughts. But if you're not replacing that with a meditation on Jesus and on the Lord, then what will happen is those thoughts will come back even stronger. And so as we talk about lusts and we talk about how those lusts come to fruition You guys, I I want you to know that it starts in your mind. And you have to take control of that, not just by putting it out of your mind, but by setting your mind on things above, by putting your mind on Jesus. 
And, and that applies in whatever it is that your mind is set on that it shouldn't be. Whatever idol you're choosing to set up in your life, it, it may be just constant worry, constant fretting over things you have no control about. And that becomes your idol. Really, it's, it's control, that you want to have control of your life and you don't, so you're worried about it. It's, it's idolatry just with a different spin on it. But whatever lust you have, whatever lust is taking hold of you, you've got to put it out of your mind. You've got to take that thought captive, crucify it, put your mind on Jesus. That's what Amnon didn't do. It so consumed him. It so controlled him. Paul talks about fleeing these lusts in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. He says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. See, lust is really, at, at its root, discontentment. You want something you can't have, whether it be a woman, whether it be a relationship, whether it be money, power, approval. You want something that at the time you don't have, and, and oh man, it just consumes you. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some, having strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Listen. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And Paul tells us, flee these things. Flee these lusts. Have contentment. Because when your mind is set on Jesus, contentment comes. When your mind is set on the things of the world, pretty soon you believe that you need all those things. You, you need to be fulfilled sexually you, by someone other than your spouse, potentially. Or if you're single, by someone that you're not married to. When, when you're focused on money, then you're going to go and pursue it in, in whatever means however many hours I need to work, however it affects my family. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. Some of you are broke, and yet you are consumed with money. It's the love of money, whether you have it or, or not. It's still the pursuit of it. And it becomes an idol that has to be crucified, that has to be absolutely purged from our lives. Some of us are absolutely drunk with the approval of men. We, we so desperately need people to approve us, to tell us that we are something special or that they appreciate us and compliments and they're like a drug. And, and, and you're lusting after that. You almost can't function without it. If a day goes by and, and nobody approves you, you're down in the dumps. And what God is wanting to show you is that's idolatry. It's the worship of self. It's the worship of others. And He wants 
to be in that place in your life so that you understand who you are in Christ and you receive your esteem and your approval and your confidence from Him and no man, no person. And when you understand that, when you get a hold of, of the, the fact that you've been made in His image and that your personality was fashioned and shaped before the foundations of the world, the gifts you have, the talents you have, the skills and abilities, your height, your looks, everything about you was created by God. And the Bible tells us that He makes all things good. Now, we're marred by sin, certainly. But if you're always down in the dumps about, you know, I wish I was six foot, or if I just, you know, had a little bit more talent, I could have gotten a scholarship and... If I was a little better looking, you know, maybe I would have been able to find somebody better. You know, if I just had a better personality, I could make more money or whatever it is that, that you are lusting after. It's idolatry. It's basically telling God, you don't know what you're doing. If you did, then you would have done it this way. And see, what God wants you to recognize is that you're made in His image. And when you grab hold of that and you become content with who you are, and the gifts that you have, then you're no longer seeking after things that are only going to bring destruction in your life. And that's what idolatry does. Just like with Amnon, it brought destruction. In fact, it it brought death to him, literally. And, And that's what sin does. The wages of sin is death. Not only in that it brings about physical death, and not only in that it brings about spiritual death, if you don't know Jesus as you're separated from God and under His wrath. But you guys, sin brings about death daily. It brings about death in relationships. It brings about death to someone's usefulness for God. It brings about death in a lot of different ways. And know this, that your sin will find you out. That your sin will destroy you. It will bring death to you. Just like it did with Amnon. You, we have to, you guys, crucify the lusts of the flesh. Flee from them. We have to put our mind on Jesus because it really does start here. Every sin starts in the mind. And, and you've heard it said, but I think it's worth repeating, that nobody, nobody is walking with Jesus one day and then running off with somebody else's spouse the next. It never happens that way. It's always a digression. It's always a little here, a little there, a compromise here, and pretty soon you find yourself doing things you never would have imagined. And so it starts with those thoughts and those areas where it's like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. You've got to nip that in the bud. You've got to crucify that. You've got to get a hold of those thoughts because they will consume you and the enemy will take a stronghold in your life. And, and that's why husbands and wives, you need to keep each other accountable. You, you need to be praying with one another. You, you need to be helping point each other to Jesus. And when you see those things, when, when you see those areas of compromise, we need to help each other to recognize that. And so the lusts of the flesh, Amnon, A perfect example of a person who just ran headlong into what he wanted. And it ended up being that which he hated. And let that be a lesson. 
Those things you think you want so bad, those idols that have creeped up in your life, those things that are consuming you, they will be the death of you. You will hate those things. And so don't bring it into your life. Learn a lesson from Amnon ahead of time. Don't have to look back and go, why did I do this? Why did I bring this upon myself? That thing you loved, that thing you thought would be so good for you that you wanted so bad, it will be something you hate. The other thing we see here is revenge. Absalom finds out that Amnon raped his sister. And initially, he didn't say much about it. It says he, he didn't say good or bad, verse 22. He didn't say anything. He just sat on it. He just sat on that for a while because he had a plan. In fact, verse 23 tells us, it came to pass after two full years. Some of you, like Absalom, have the ability to really harbor bitterness, really hold grudges. I mean, you can put on a good face, smile, you're nice to the person, but in your heart, you're plotting and planning how you're going to get back. In your heart, you are knowing that one day you're, you're going to make them pay for what they've done. Two full years. This is a guy who really wanted revenge. He could taste it. And he was willing to wait for it. And some of you tonight are, are bitter. You're angry. You're wanting revenge. And even though maybe you're not insane enough to go get it, it's still consuming you. It's consuming your life. The hatred. The hypocrisy. Because maybe like Absalom, you're putting on a good face, but in your heart you hate the person. Maybe it's somebody in your family. You despise them, and you tear them down, and you stab them in the back, but you're nice to their face, and you're getting revenge, and you're undermining them. Every chance you get, every opportunity that's there, you want them to look bad, and you're killing them a little at a time, rather than dealing with the problem. And that's what Absalom does. And a lot of it's because David didn't deal with it. And parents, you need to deal with stuff in your household. Ignoring it is not a solution. It does not go away. You need to discipline your children. You need to take responsibility for the things that happen. Covering it up doesn't work. Pretending like your child has no problems doesn't work. Defending your children when they get in trouble at school is not a brilliant strategy. Our prison system is loaded with people whose parents defended them their whole lives. If that's the the kind of child you want to raise. I mean, even if you think the teacher is wrong, don't give your child the indication that you think the teacher is wrong. Don't undermine authority. You're teaching your children that authority doesn't matter. Deal with it between you and the teacher. Deal with stuff. That's the issue. David doesn't deal with it. Of all the things David is, a a phenomenal king, an amazing follower of God, an extraordinary writer, a man after God's own heart, of all the things David was, a worshiper like no one else, of all the things he was, he was a horrible father. And men, let us learn from that. And you know what? These are adult children too. And he's not dealing with things. And if you have adult children, obviously you deal with things differently. But still you're, you're a parent and, and God has called you to be there to counsel your children and to point them to Jesus. Certainly when they're under your roof. David does nothing and so Absalom takes matters into his own hands. Two full years. 
He plots and he plans. Finally, the day comes. He kills his brother Amnon. And then the ball just keeps rolling. Because now Absalom realizes, you know what? My dad, David, he doesn't do jack for his family. He's a horrible dad. I don't even think he's that great of a king. I think I'm going to take over the kingdom. And he justifies it in his mind because of the poor choices that David has made. And if you wonder why your kids don't respect you, if you wonder why they talk back to you and they say such hurtful things to you, it's because you've allowed them to. You've got to nip that in the bud because it will become an Absalom to you. They will absolutely ruin and devastate your lives. And for some of you, and your kids are eight, nine years old, and you're, you're behind. You need to get on the ball. Some of you, your kids are grown, and it's, it's probably, in a sense, too late. But you can pray, and you can repent, and you can ask God to work in their lives and to do the job in them that you didn't do, to come along later and to build that discipline into them. But you guys, you cannot let your children talk to you disrespectfully. You cannot let them undermine you. And and some of you absolutely fly off the handle over spilt milk. You, you, You go crazy when they break something. And then you don't do anything when they say, you're stupid. There's a There's a big problem with that picture. What you're teaching your children is you you have anger that comes out over irritants, but you don't deal with real issues. And what you have to do is let the spilt melt go. Let the broken glass lie. Clean it up. Say, be careful. Try not to do that. Don't fly off the handle. Don't discipline them for that unless they did it spitefully. But when they speak disrespectfully to you or to someone else, you are on it. Make your children look adults in the eye and speak to them respectfully. Teach them authority. Teach them discipline. Guys, it's huge because what we see with Absalom is that it will ruin their lives when allowed to go unchecked. And this issue of revenge... I guess there were three issues I, was, I want to talk about. I didn't intend to, but lust, parenting, and revenge. But this issue of revenge, man, if you're bitter tonight, give it to Jesus. Because it will bring death to you. It will consume you. It will control you. It will devastate you. And you know what? It never brings about the satisfaction that you thought it would. You know, when you just... Tell somebody exactly what you think they need to hear. And man, I'm going to get my piece of flesh. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And you just launch out and you say everything that you ever wanted to say to them. Do you feel better afterward? I mean, I've done it plenty of times. I never feel better. I always feel like an absolute idiot. Like, why did I do that? Why can't I keep my thoughts to myself? Why can't I just give it to Jesus? Because it didn't do any good. Now, there are times where you need to sit down and you need to talk with people, but it can't be in your flesh or it won't produce godliness. But however it is, you're wanting revenge. Like I said, many of you, because you don't have enough guts, aren't doing it to somebody's face. You're doing it behind their back. You're making them look bad and you're getting your revenge out that way. Many wives who are 
bitter at their husbands, who are unsatisfied in their marriages, who aren't content, will a little at a time get revenge. Little cutting things. And stupid husbands like me that don't pick up on that, they don't recognize that she's crying out for something that you're not giving her. There's bitterness coming out, and it's coming out in the tone. It's coming out in the cutting remarks. It's cutting, coming out in the fact that she doesn't respect her husband. And maybe, ladies, that's you. And then what will happen if, if nothing changes, then you begin to cut your husband down in front of others. And you begin to say hurtful things. And in a sense, there's a, there's a hurt and broken woman c- crying out for a husband that will get his act together. That will lead her and love her and point her to Jesus. But it's coming out in the wrong way and it's bitterness. And it's vengeful. And it's cutting him down. Because this is my way to get him back. I'm going to make him look bad. And men, notice that. And begin to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Begin to sacrifice for her. Deal with what is happening. But ladies, if that's what you're doing and your husband isn't changing, know this, you're in sin too. You're going about it the wrong way. And that kind of revenge will only bring death to you. It will only bring discouragement. It, it will bring devastation to your family. Now your kids won't respect their father. Some of you have stepchildren relationships where your ex-husband has the kids sometimes and and ex-wife has the kids other times, that whole deal. And it, it never makes any sense to me why when mom has the kids, she runs dad into the ground. Then when dad has the kids, he runs mom into the ground. This is not producing a healthy environment for your children. This is not going to bring the intended result that you want to have. This is unhealthy for your kids. It will destroy them. With everything you have, fight against that. Fight against getting revenge on ex-husband, ex-wife through the kids. Because it will be devastating to them. With everything you have, build up that ex-spouse. Point out the good. It will be better in the long run for your kids. But this issue of revenge, you guys, it has to be crucified. Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about not taking vengeance yourself. Give place for God's wrath. Because when you take things into your own hands, essentially what you're doing is you're usurping God's authority and that's the discipline that they're going to receive for that sin, ultimately, here on the earth. Let God bring discipline. Let God do it. He'll do a much better job. And then you won't be liable for the consequences of your sin. Let God do it. And so tonight, you guys, whatever it is that the Lord has spoken to you, whether it's the issue of lust and and idolatry and wanting that which you can't have and being consumed by it, whether it's a parenting issue, whether it's this issue of revenge and bitterness, man, deal with it with Jesus tonight. Take it to the cross. Allow Him to work in your life radically tonight. Don't leave here with any of those things unattended to. I'm going to ask Stuart and the band to come up and just lead us in a song. And you guys, just take a couple minutes. We're, we're running out of time, but just take a couple minutes to deal with Jesus.
in these areas tonight. Let's stand together. Father, just work in us tonight, God. I I pray that you would just speak clearly to each one of us, God, right where we're at, Lord, those things that we need to deal with. And Lord, may we take it to the cross. God, may we crucify it. Lord, may we repent of it and turn from it and receive your forgiveness and your healing and your restoration tonight, Lord. Do that work, God. May we be just open to you. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, you may do so at our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Once again, thank you for listening, and God bless.